It's time for our regular segment, Legally Speaking, joined by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Interesting topics on the agenda today. I'm reading a Crown Sentence Appeal for failing to provide, what does this mean, the necessities of life? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Uh, and I should say it's a very interesting section of the criminal code. Uh, because the criminal code, with very few exceptions, this being one of them, doesn't impose positive obligations on people to do anything. Um, so, for example, if uh, you see a crime being committed, you're not generally under any obligation to do anything about it. You don't have to rush over and save the person. If you just stand passively and watch, you haven't committed any kind of a crime, which is just an interesting intellectual thing to think about is that the criminal code is generally concerned with prohibiting somebody from doing something that's going to harm someone else. That would be the general theme of it. Uh, but this particular section of failing to provide the necessities of life is an exception to that. Hmm. Uh, and this section imposes a positive duty and it lists various people that it's imposed on. They include a parent, foster parent, guardian, head of a family. That's an interesting term these days. Um, uh, to provide uh, care for or other uh, people, including uh, a spouse or common-law partner, or this language, a person under his charge. Charge. Now, that's gender-specific, but it applies equally to men and women. Hmm. Um, and then it also lists um, sort of who this obligation might apply to um, and tries to define it. And so, for example... With that broad term of a person under his charge, um, that would include someone who is unable by reason of uh, age, uh, mental disorder, uh, detention, or other causes to withdraw uh, himself or herself from that charge. And so, for example, I'll give you what that might uh, apply to. So, one of the pieces, one of the items there would be by reason of detention. So, for example, uh, if jail guards fail to feed an inmate and they starve to death, the jail guards can be prosecuted for failing to provide the necessities of life. Hmm. Okay, uh, But it's broader than that, of course, because this includes all these different categories, children, spouse, and so forth. Hmm. Uh, and this particular case uh, where there was this appeal and a decision that was just released, uh, involved a 55-year-old woman who had Down syndrome who had been cared for for more than 18 years by the accused. Hmm. Uh, and the other thing which was very unique about the case um, is that there was no indication that the accused had any animosity towards the deceased. In fact, they had a good, caring relationship and extending over a very long period of time. Uh, but what transpired um, is that the uh, 55-year-old woman who had Down syndrome, who was being cared for, stopped eating. She just wasn't eating as much as she previously did over a number of months. Um, and the caregiver, for her part, uh, listened to advice from the woman with Down syndrome's mother, uh, who told her uh, that this was just a, a common occurrence for people with Down syndrome of that age, and that you can have early onset dementia and a lack of eating, and this is just what happens. Don't worry about it. And the caregiver accepted that advice. Um, 
and accepted it to the point where this woman became thinner and thinner over time. Um, and she said she there was still she was still making some efforts to feed her, but the woman was like spitting out boost and this kind of thing. Hmm. But she never got her medical care. That was really the crux of it. Interesting. Um, and the the caregiver said, "Well, if she doesn't want to eat, this is the decision she's made. I don't want to see her going into palliative care. That would be bad for her. I want to care for her at home. Right? She was lived a live in caregiver. Yeah. And eventually, sadly, the woman just expired." Um, and the cause of death was slow starvation. Oh my and God. so the woman was prosecuted for both criminal negligence causing death. She was found not guilty of that. But she was also prosecuted with the offense that we just talked about, failing to provide the necessities of life. And in this case, that would be, I suppose, medical care, right? Obtaining that or something would be a necessity of life or getting somehow food into her. Um, and so she was convicted. Um, and the sentencing judge, of course, and this is sort of that one of those categories of cases, which is the hard one, right? It's not difficult to come to fashion a, a punitive sentence if you were dealing with somebody who was malicious or acted out of hatred or greed or some other reason. But this woman, the caregiver, appeared to have just been completely misguided and didn't take reasonable steps when she saw the woman she was caring for slowly expiring over a long period of time. She accepted this bad advice from her mother that this was just a natural state of affairs. And so the trial judge sentenced the woman to what's referred to as a conditional jail sentence. And a conditional jail sentence, sometimes people would refer to it as house arrest. And the way that works is that if somebody is being sentenced to less than two years in prison, and if there's no mandatory minimum sentence, one of the sentences available to a judge would be to put the person on a conditional sentence, usually house arrest, except for, you know, time to go out and buy groceries, that kind of thing, rather than sending the person to prison. So that's what the sentencing judge did. Uh, the Crown, for its part, thought that that sentence was inadequate and wanted an actual jail sentence for the woman. And so they appealed. And that's the decision that just came down from the B.C. Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal agreed with the Crown. And the Court of Appeal said that an appropriate sentence here would have been a 15-month jail sentence, followed by a period of probation, which the judge had already imposed. So the first thought, as you're reading that decision, you think, oh my goodness, this caregiver is going to prison now for 15 months. But the Court of Appeal didn't do that. What they said was, the woman has already served the entire 12-month house arrest sentence, uh, and so uh, they gave her some additional credit for the fact that she'd already served it. She said, well, the Crown could, the court said the Crown could have applied to stop the conditional sentence running, but they didn't. And so the Court of Appeal has said there should have been a jail sentence here. We are imposing a 15-month jail sentence, but she need not serve it because she's already effectively served it by the house arrest. <laughs> so I must say it's an interesting thing, of course, right? Because when you talk about some of these principles, and often the Court of Appeal and certainly the Supreme Court of Canada are living in the land of principles, right? Um, And broad principles in terms of range of sentences and so on often run up to, for a trial judge, the reality of the individual person before them, right? And this is an example of that, right? You've got this caregiver with no record who had a loving relationship, a caring relationship with this woman, not loving, caring relationship with this woman for years um, and wasn't intending to do harm, was doing what she thought was the right thing to do on the terrible advice of her mother. Hmm. 
And so with that background, you have to be, uh, you know, it takes something to say, well, no, you're going off to prison to deter you or to deter others or to denounce this, right? So what we have now is that court of appeal decision saying sentence should have been longer, but they didn't quite have the whatever it might be to actually send the caregiver off to prison. They found a legal way to avoid that. Hmm. And so that's the outcome of a very unusual case and a very unusual fact pattern. And one of the very few sections of the criminal code that actually compels you to go and do something as opposed to just not do things that would harm other people. All right, let's take our first break. Legally speaking, we'll continue right after this. If it's happening, it's here. This is Adam Sterling on CFAX 1070. All right, we're back on the air here at CFAX 1070. Legally Speaking continues with Michael Mulligan for Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, the next story on the agenda is one that seems to occupy the better part of my program, one way or the other, it seems, (laughs) from time to time. It says here, notice of injunction by leaving it under a tripod of a Rainforest Flying Squad member. What happened? So, as as we've talked about before, and you've covered well, uh, uh, there were all sorts of people being prosecuted for criminal contempt, for continuing to block the road uh, following the uh, injunction to stop doing that. Um, and a good percentage of the cases wound up uh, being stayed uh, or discontinued um, after a, there was a decision that a... Uh, uh, sort of a summary of the injunction that the RCMP were reading to people blocking the road uh, was not sufficient, right? Not all the required information was in there. But uh, this particular case, I thought, was a great fact pattern. And the fact pattern was a man sitting up above on a tripod, it was some 14 feet roughly off the ground, blocking the road. Uh, and a uh, staff sergeant showed up, uh, and it was all on videotape, and read to him the abbreviated uh, version of the injunction, but then thought to take a copy of it and drop it under the tripod, pointing it out to the man, and then left. Uh, and then came back an hour and a half later. The man was still up on the tripod. The piece of paper was still sitting on the ground. And so the man was uh, arrested and charged with criminal contempt. And so the issue in this case was whether this this particular man had proper notice of the uh, injunction, because, of course, there had been this decision saying the brief the summary of it wasn't sufficient. Hmm. And here, the uh, judge found that, indeed, dropping the uh, uh, copy of the injunction at the bottom of the tripod was completely sufficient. Uh, the uh, judge pointed out that the Supreme Court civil rules uh, provide uh, that uh, you can affect personal uh, service on somebody Uh, You don't need to physically hand uh, an injunction or order to somebody. If you sort of put it there and draw the person's attention to it, you've succeeded, right? You you can't avoid being served by, uh, you know, dropping the item or, you know, holding your hands behind your back and running away. (laughs) Putting your hands in your pockets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) that doesn't do it. And so the other interesting thing is the judge said, look, uh, the man had an hour and a half. And if if he wanted to, he could have just climbed down from his tripod and read the injunction. But he didn't. Perhaps out of concern, he wouldn't be allowed to climb back up his tripod. But Mm -hmm. that was his problem. Uh, And so on the facts of this case, the judge found that, indeed, the uh, staff sergeant had effected service by leaving the uh, order uh, underneath the tripod. The fact that the man didn't want to come down and read was his problem. Uh, And so the man was found guilty of criminal contempt. So that was just a really interesting fact pattern. The other interesting element, the man uh, also claimed that 
he should have had the order read to him in French. Hmm. Um, after speaking English, he then said, again in French, please, sir. <laughs> uh, the officer didn't speak any French, and so that didn't happen. Uh, but again, the judge concluded that made absolutely no difference. As it was very clear the man could speak English. <laughs> he was on video doing it. Um, and so uh, you, you can't uh, avoid uh, an obligation to comply with an injunction by uh, demanding that it be read to you in another official language. That doesn't work either. Um, and so uh, this man has been convicted, and well, a number of these uh, prosecutions can't proceed because of that uh, decision on the uh, the summary version of the order not being sufficient. This one uh, did succeed because of the uh, foresight to leave the piece of paper below the tripod. And I should say, it looks like some of this may be commencing again. I have absolutely no doubt that the police will be bringing some lozenges with them and maybe a glass of water so they can read the entire injunction to whoever might be up on the tripod if that starts again this season. So service, the tripod, and that's completely satisfactory. This is a, a neat one I have next year. It's one of the most significant tributes that power has ever paid to reason, is it not? Yeah, that's that's the opening uh, of a uh, what I think is probably uh, one of the uh, very best uh, opening statements in a uh, case that uh, I've ever seen. Uh, and I was reminded of it uh, in a recent uh, recently had an opportunity to attend the Palace of Justice in Nuremberg, Germany. Uh, where some of the uh, war crimes uh, prosecutions occurred uh, following the uh, end of World War II. Uh, And what you just read was a uh, part of the opening statement from uh, Robert Jackson, who was the lead U.S. prosecutor uh, for those uh, war crimes trials. Um, And the point that he was making there was that uh, in many instances, and in fact in this instance, uh, the uh, Soviets wanted to simply line up all the Nazis that were captured and shoot them. Hmm. Um, and and a remarkable uh, um, process, it was uh, uh, the Soviets were persuaded to agree to hold a trial rather than simply shooting everyone. Um, and so there was a trial. There were trials conducted in uh, Nuremberg. Um, at the uh, courthouse there. And the trials operated by having four judges, one appointed by the United States, one from the UK, one French, and one Soviet judge. Um, And uh, the accused uh, were there, and they were also afforded uh, defense counsel, if they wished it. And one of the other points made by uh, Jackson, the bath of the prosecution, um, was that it was important that the trials had the full appearance of fairness. Um, and he used the language of how ineffective it would be if they were seen to have been handed poison chalices, basically. Hmm. And the idea was that he wanted the world to be able to see the evidence uh, about what these uh, men had done, they were all men, um, uh, and to see a fair and open process with reasons um, rather than simply uh, assuming they were guilty and killing them. Hmm. Um, and so the trial was conducted. It went on for many months. Um, interestingly, there were uh, various arguments made about the fairness of the process, appreciating that the process was uh, yards better than what the Soviets would have done. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the uh, complaints from defense counsel were wide-ranging. They started with an argument that um, the things they were charged with were not uh, crimes, um, 
on the basis, well, nobody, they weren't written down. Things like uh, you know, the indictment included things like engaging in a war of aggression, hmm. right, or genocide, <laughs> things like that. Um, that did not succeed. Uh, the various other arguments they made were also interesting ones in terms of fairness, because they are issues which remain uh, as modern-day criminal law issues. One of the issues that they raised, which would have modern resonance, uh, is that they raised an argument that the prosecution was not required to show or provide the defense with evidence that would tend to show the accused person was not guilty. They were only required to show them evidence they were going to rely upon to prove their guilt, uh, which is very interesting. That's, of course, not the state of affairs any longer in Canada. Uh, but um, that state of affairs was found to be acceptable in this context. Um, other challenges uh, arose, including by virtue of the fact that the defense counsel in the case, all of whom were German lawyers, which was interesting, um, none of them had any experience conducting a cross-examination because that simply wasn't part of the German criminal justice system. They hmm. had never done it before. Interesting. Um, and so the trial proceeded on sort of a mixture of like affidavit evidence. Some of the evidence the judges were considering didn't involve live witnesses, but there was provision made so that uh, defense counsel could ask permission to cross-examine uh, witnesses. And so many witnesses were, in fact, uh, cross-examined. Uh, and they just had no experience doing it. Um, the defense was also denied uh, an adjournment to allow time for preparation or resources to gather evidence in the way that the prosecution had. So clearly arguments to be made about all of those things. Uh, but the principal takeaway is just how impressive it is that that, that a trial process was followed rather than something else. Um, Ultimately, the, not all of the uh, men who were charged were convicted. Um, most were. Uh, Twelve of them were sentenced to death by hanging. Uh, a number of them were sentenced to long prison terms. But three of them were found not guilty altogether, hmm. um, which is a very interesting outcome. Uh, all of those decisions out of interest were split decisions. And the way the rules uh, worked is that you needed to have... Um, at least three judges agreed to convict. Um, and the Soviet judge would have convicted on, I think, virtually everything, and on orders of Stalin, voted for the death penalty for everyone. <laughs> I guess that being consistent with the Soviet position that everyone should have been lined up against a wall and shot. Indeed. Uh, but that isn't the outcome. Um, and uh, the other interesting thing is that there was, well, Generally speaking, the defense that was often raised was one of either Hitler's orders, sort of, uh, we were ordered to do this, it's not my fault, that didn't get anywhere, uh, nor did, generally speaking, an argument that was made that the Allies had conducted some things which were the same. Um, so, for example, the argument was made, well, you've charged me with killing civilians. And so they would say, well, here's an example of where some Allied bombing did the same thing, for example. Hmm. That didn't succeed. But one of the areas where that did succeed uh, was a, a charge brought uh, based on uh, Nazi U-boats sinking Allied su uh, civilian supply ships without warning hmm. and then doing nothing to save the crew that wound up in the Atlantic. Um, and the arguments made there included the fact that 
many of the ships had arms on them or were supplying arms, and further that the Allies had conducted similar operations. And so that argument did succeed, hmm. because not because of the, hey, you're doing it too, right? That didn't fly, right? Nor does that fly currently, right? If you're charged with speeding, it's no defense to say, but look at all the other cars, <laughs> right? That's not going to help you any. Um, but it succeeded because many of these things, of course, were sort of amorphous principles. There wasn't a law you could point to, right? Uh, and so you were looking at things like, um, you know, with some reference to sort of the common law concepts of what is criminal and wrong. Um, and so they would look at things like, you know, treaties and agreements in terms of how wars are to be conducted. And on that particular uh, example of the submarine sinking armed civilian ships, it just wasn't clear that that was contrary to the rules of war. And so uh, the charges with respect to that resulted in acquittals. And so the entire process, with all of its flaws and awards, uh, I think is uh, exactly what you referred to at the outset, uh, which is one of the greatest um, um, uh, one of the greatest examples of a tribute that power is paid to reason. The idea that we're going to have a reasoned trial, provide reasons for judge, you know, reasons for the decision, and uh, rather than uh, simply acting out of an ability to do so as the victor. So I think that was just uh, very interesting things uh, from the uh, uh, reminders of uh, some of those principles that uh, developed out of uh, the war crimes prosecutions following the end of World War II. Some of the issues we're still dealing with today. Fascinating discussion. Michael, thank you so much as always. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX 1070.